and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr, and we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us on Banter today is Naomi Schaefer-Riley, who's a senior fellow with us here at AEI, where she focuses on child welfare and foster care issues. Specifically, her work analyzes the role of faith-based, civic, and community groups in changing the foster care and adoption landscapes. She also studies how socioeconomic factors affect foster care and the impact of the opioid crisis on child welfare. She's also a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. Naomi is the author of seven books, and her latest, No Way to Treat a Child, How the Foster Care System, Family Courts, and Racial Activists Are Wrecking Young Lives, is coming out on October 12th. Naomi is a frequent contributor to a variety of publications, including The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post, and she was previously a columnist for The New York Post and an editor and writer for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Naomi. Phoebe, I'm so happy we have Naomi, because while I really like this book, No Way to Treat a Child, which is, I think, going to be a important book in the in the discipline. Um, what I really do is I love the idea of the book because Naomi had been a, 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 a what I would consider kind of a generalist, had written about a lot of things in her journalistic career. And then all of a sudden, four, three or four or five years ago, she decided to devote her life to the topic of the most vulnerable children in America. And she's really thrown herself into it to such an extent that she now can write what I think is an important book on a very important difficult discipline and, and area of public policy. And so the first question I have for Naomi is, why? How did this happen? What made you turn to this topic? Thanks, Robert. Um, I, I think that, that I've actually been um, kind of working my way toward this topic for more than 20 years now. Um, it probably started, my interest probably started when I um, was a editor at the Wall Street Journal and I was working on the Houses of Worship column there. Um, and I really started to notice all of the work that faith-based institutions and churches were doing in the work, world of foster care and adoption. Um, and then a few years ago, um, I actually ended up writing a book about American Indians. Um, for those who are not familiar, those communities in this country have some of the worst child welfare outcomes in the country. Um, and it, it, it was pretty difficult writing about some of the things that happen to children in those areas. Um, and then finally, uh, a few years ago, I got a position as a columnist at the New York Post, and I started to write about some of the high-profile cases uh, that were coming in, in the city, um, often child fatalities or other tragic abuse and neglect cases. Uh, and it really just made me wonder about the system as a whole and, um, and how America was treating its most vulnerable children. And I uh, it, I think that's the, that's the point at which I started calling you, Robert. Yes, that's right. You said, uh, hey, you're a former worker in social services, and you're working at AEI, and why don't we work together? And and that's what we did, and it's been a great, yeah. a great partnership. Um, you know, in that answer, you've used a lot of uh, what are, are actually technical terms, child welfare, abuse and neglect, foster care, adoption. From a standpoint of a child, Take us from uh, an abuse neglect report or an issue concerning abuse and neglect to uh, placement in foster care to adoption and just and and describe how those three categories of of situations for a child relate to each other. Sure. So 
I think you have what people refer to as the front end of the system, which are reports to the child welfare system. Um, uh, about, I don't know, a quarter of those at least come from what are called mandated reporters. Um, so those are teachers, social workers, doctors. Um, but a lot of those calls are coming from neighbors and other people who happen to see a child be mistreated or think they see a child being mistreated. Those calls then often come into a child abuse hotline, although sometimes people just call the police. Um, and we have, you know, about one and a half million of those calls a year. Um, we send out people to investigate those calls um, because we need to find out whether they are, uh, you know, they're real cases of abuse or neglect or just what somebody happened to see. Or sometimes, you know, they're malicious cases where people are accusing someone of abuse or neglect and that, that didn't really happen. Um, so, you know, every state uh, has its own set of child welfare agencies, child protective services. Um, sometimes those are run by the state, but sometimes they're run by the counties. Uh, and we send out a group of child protective service workers to go investigate each of these cases and figure out what actually happened and whether those cases can be what's called substantiated. Uh, there are about 800,000 cases a year in the United States of substantiated abuse or neglect. That doesn't mean, by the way, that all those other cases, uh, it didn't happen. It just means that we weren't able to say for sure that something did go wrong. Um, so from a child's perspective, you know, that would be their first kind of contact of uh, someone from an uh, investigator would come out to a home probably and interview parents or relatives or depending on the age of the child, the child themselves to find out what had happened. Um, and then a, a finding is made. Um, in most cases, of course, uh, even when there is substantiated neglect or abuse, um, a child is left in that, in that home and the parents are offered some kind of services in order to um, try to fix things. Uh, sometimes those are addiction treatment programs or anger management programs or parenting classes. Um, and, you know, in the majority of cases, that's how uh, child welfare cases are resolved. Um, for a small subset of children, though, uh, those cases result in a child being removed from their home. Uh, that is a very drastic step um, that we don't take lightly in this country. And in those cases, a judge, a family court judge, typically has to sign off on that removal. A child welfare worker is taking that child out of the home because they feel that that child is really in danger remaining in that home. Um, and that is how we ended up with uh, about 450,000 kids in the foster care system right now nationwide. That's, that's a snapshot in time. Um, over the course of the year, there are probably about 600,000 kids who go in and out of foster care. But at any one time, it's about 450,000 uh, in, in the last few years. Um, in the 90s, during the crack epidemic, that number was much higher. Uh, we also saw it uh, higher and it dipped down a little bit uh, since the beginning of the opioid epidemic. Um, and then what happens is those, those children who are in foster care, typically the parents, uh, you know, then have to go through a process to see if they can get their kids back, if they can regain custody. And we again offer them and mandate in those cases that if they want their child back, that they need to go through some series of courses of action, again, whether it's um, getting off of drugs or uh, becoming, you know, less addicted to alcohol uh, or, you know, finding a way to, to, you know, say that like for a mother, you know, let's say they have a, a boyfriend in the home who has been abusive to a child, uh, that they have to counsel the mother about, you know, that, they, that she can't allow that the ch children near that abusive person. Um, 
if after all of that does not seem to work uh, over a course of a number of months or years, uh, then the system uh, moves to terminate parental rights. And what happens there is that the state makes a case that this parent is not fit and is not trying to become fit, basically, in order to care for that child. And then that child is freed for adoption. Uh, there are about um, 100,000 kids in the foster care system uh, who could be adopted, who, whose parental rights are either terminated or in the process of being terminated, basically. Most of those kids who are freed for adoption uh, tend to be older kids, um, kids with uh, enlarged sibling groups and kids who have um, uh, mental, uh, different mental illnesses or um, some kind of medical difficulties. Uh, those are the kids who are, um, they would say, kind of hardest to place because they require so much um, work and, uh, and effort and, and resources on the part of families willing to take them in. So that's kind of the that was, whole process beginning to end. Yes, and that was a great summary, an important summary, because I don't know that everyone fully gets it. And another point that needs to be made is that child welfare is not referring to the welfare programs that are public assistance. Many, many more children or families in the United States are recipients of various forms of public assistance. Uh, this is the smallest of the various sort of programs of social services because it has the most severe problems concerning that have to do with child abuse and neglect and foster care. But I was going to ask you, Naomi, you're a full-fledged charter member of the conservative world. I mean, you're you're <laughs> as true conservative as there is. Um, and you described an awful lot of government there and an awful lot of investigators and intrusions into people's private lives. Do you, do you think that um, uh, government's gone awry there and taking too many kids out of houses where there are potential problems and investigating completely innocent parents? Well, I, I'm a true blue conservative and I'm, I'm not a true blue libertarian. Uh, so, so there is a distinction there. Um, I, I guess, uh, I, I don't know, maybe the, the phrase has been sort of misused in so many ways, but I would say I'm kind of a law and order conservative. And I think that in many cases, what is happening to these children is a crime and it is a crime that society needs to protect them from. And so in the same way that conservatives um, need to support good policing, investigation, and punishment of people um, who are mistreating other people in our society. I think the same is true for child welfare. Um, and so the question then is, you know, what what is government good at this? Um, and so the, the answer is, in many cases, no, but probably not for the reasons you might think. Um, the first problem, I think, uh, with when thinking about child welfare in a kind of law and order context is that we are pretty bad at determining, um, uh, you know, who is most vulnerable and who is in imminent harm, uh, in danger of imminent harm. So we get these calls, you know, hundreds of thousands of calls coming into these um, hotlines every year, and we have to determine uh, whether or not those children are really in danger. And those calls could include everything from someone, you know, some nosy neighbor saying, I think my neighbor left, you know, her daughter in the car while she ran into the dry cleaner to uh, I think my neighbor is beating his child with a belt right now. Um, and so, you know, we, we kind of have to make some finer distinctions now. One of the things I write about in the book is um, the, the innovative, use, innovative use of predictive analytics 
um, to try to understand which kids are most at risk and which kids need to be most immediately investigated. So that's but, really but, but Naomi, just for a minute there, yeah. the, 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 the call that comes in, and I, I'm familiar with sometimes these calls about the, you know, the, the, the mom or dad who, who left their child in the car briefly while they ran inside or maybe lost yeah. track of their child at a, at a big park festival, but it just but found them. When those are investigated, they don't lead to removals. They are they are awkward and unpleasant and and a pain and sometimes misguided. But but child welfare officers in the United States do not remove children from households based on um, really un un unserious uh, situations. Or or am, am I wrong about that? No, you're you're absolutely right. Those are the cases that make the headlines. Uh, you know, the police uh, took my kids into their car because I let them walk a mile to the park by themselves. Um, that is a, that's a case that will make headlines, but it is not at all typical of the cases that we see in the child welfare system. So the, the biggest thing I think people under, need to understand about what's driving the child welfare crisis in this country um, is substance abuse um, and alcohol abuse. And what is happening is those, the, the vast majority of cases involve parents who are simply unwilling or unable because of mental illness or substance abuse to care for children. And we also know that it's not the free-range parenting that's getting caught up mostly in the child welfare system because the, the kids who are most frequently um, in these cases and in most need of help are young children. Um, so, you know, kids who are age zero to three are the ones who are most likely to die from maltreatment. And it's not because you know, and those kids are not in danger because parents are letting their two-year-old walk to the park by themselves. Yeah. It's because those kids are at, uh, you know, what I when I was a, a, a younger mother, I used to call the mobile but totally irrational stage, um, where, you know, you have to keep constant track of a child at that age because they can touch a hot stove or run out the front door or swallow a Lego or, you know, uh, you know get into a bathtub by themselves, all these things. Um, that can drive a perfectly sober parent crazy. Um, but imagine trying to do it while your mind is altered uh, with various drugs or alcohol. Um, and those are the things that put, ki put kids in danger. And those are the things that are really the bulk of our investigations when it comes to child welfare. So if we're not, um, if, if, if the errors in the part of the system are not the ones of over-enforcement against a perfectly innocent parent, really, that those are inconveniences and don't happen that that much and if they do they don't lead to a removal is the problem in the system that we don't remove kids fast enough i'm afraid that that there are a lot of cases where that is true um in the 1990s we actually had a law called the adoption and safe families act that was passed uh with bipartisan support in congress and what it said was that if a child has been in the foster care system for 15 of the last 22 months, then the state should be moving to terminate parental rights. And the reason that law was passed was that kids were languishing in foster care for years. Um, we really wasted lives of kids, uh, just years of their lives, while we were waiting for parents to rehabilitate themselves. And I think the leaders in this country started to look at that and wonder, isn't there anything that we can do to kind of move this process along? Not that we shouldn't be giving parents a second chance or even a third chance, but the question is, particularly for young children, how long should these kids have to wait before they are able to be cared for by someone in a safe, in a safe stable, loving home 
um, and, and how long before they can form the necessary secure attachment to an adult um, that will enable their, you know, good intellectual, social, and emotional development. Um, and so right now, unfortunately, what you see, and I have traveled around the country, as you know, for this book, um, is just case after case where uh, kids are, are the, the law is being flouted. The 15 out of 22 months is just routinely ignored. I mean, even in New York, you know, it's, it's, an av it's, it's just an average of 20 months that kids are in foster care. Um, not, and not even, you know, that's not the outside. There, there are plenty of kids who are spending, you know, four or five years in foster care uh, at a time. And so from my perspective, that is, that is too long to waste in terms of a child's development. We should be thinking about a child's timeline, not an adult's timeline. So uh, one of the topics that's particularly difficult in this area and which you cover is race. And I just want to bring that up for a second. Uh, households that are um, African-American are more likely to have their children uh, uh, be in the foster care system, be um, uh, uh, investigated for uh, abuse and neglect, and also uh, the, the percentages with regard to deaths is much different by race in the United States. And the higher incidence of deaths in households for children as a result of abuse and neglect uh, are in black families than there are in white families. So is that all because of racism? The, the, the charge that the foster care system is uh, is racist is becoming quite common now. There's even a whole movement out there uh, called uh, Abolish Foster Care, which sort of grew up along, alongside the defund the police movement. Um, and I would have to say no. Um, I think that what you find, if you look at the numbers, is that child welfare services, it's supposed to be a service that we provide to children. Um, I, I was talking to someone recently who, who had this great analogy. He said, Look, if we um, decided to have a lead abatement program in New Orleans, and we said to everyone, uh, okay, come to us with the lead program in your home, and we will work to fix it. And uh, we found that black families came to us in much higher numbers than white families. Would we then say to the black families, oh, no, uh, we need our numbers to come out even on this spreadsheet, so we need to serve only a proportionate number of black people relative to the population? Of course we would not do that, because we are trying to provide a service to help people, and some people need more help than others. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, black children in this country are three times as likely to die of maltreatment as white children are. And so we are, through our child welfare services, through foster care, but also through prevention services, um, through investigations, through, you know, finding out what's going on in families, we are providing that service. We are trying to prevent that abuse and neglect, and when it happens, we are trying to ensure children's safety. So, no, I would not say that's a sign of racism. That is a sign of going to where the need is most felt and trying to help um, the children who most need it. And just one more question on race. Is the, has there been recently a, a, a sort of challenge against the system based on um, uh, allegation of, of, of racial bias that's actually hindered the ability to help families, black families uh, that are facing these difficulties? Well, there's so much pressure now on workers in the system to prove that they are not racist, to prove that 
um, that they will leave children in the homes of black, black parents, that they're not trying to punish black parents, that they're not biased against black parents, that they are leaving children in unsafe homes. And there was a really quite shocking investigation that came out um, just recently from the Los Angeles Times and UC Berkeley. Um, they investigated the case in Los Angeles a couple of years ago of a boy named Noah Quattro who was basically murdered by his parents shortly before his fifth birthday, tragically. And what they found was that there were many signs that Noah should have been taken out of his home and removed from this dangerous situation. But when a caseworker did finally get the ability to take this child away from this dangerous situation, she was accused of racial bias by her coworkers and the order to remove the kid was ignored. Um, she was black and the family was Hispanic. And the investigation basically said, you know, these policies that focus on keeping a child in a family at all costs and ensuring that we are, uh, you know, demonstrating cultural sensitivity, again, at all costs, um, are what basically was responsible ultimately for Noah's death. And I think we need to think about that case because I think it's emblematic of so many cases where we think we're being nice and kind and sympathetic to parents by leaving the children in their home because who would want to punish these parents further because they've already been through so much. But in fact, what we're doing is we're taking that out on the child and we're keeping children in dangerous situations in order to make their parents feel better. Uh, Naomi, one of the big themes in your book, like a, a thesis, is that the foster care system, like you've just said, is prioritizing adults at the expense of children. Um, can you lay out a couple of your solutions, you know, not only raising the alarm about this issue, but what you're specifically proposing? Part of what I'm proposing is actually, you know, keeping to the laws that we have on the books. Like I already mentioned, the Adults and Safe Families Act is really important in terms of making sure that kids don't languish in foster care for years at a time unnecessarily. Um, but there was another law passed in the 1990s called the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, uh, which basically says that when we are placing kids in the foster care system, either for temporary care or for uh, adoption, we can't discriminate on the basis of race. And one of the things that you find that is becoming increasingly popular now is the idea that a child's skin color should match the skin color of their foster or adoptive parents. Mm -hmm. um, and that even that it would be better for this child to stay in the foster care system rather than find a home where the skin color does not match. And I think obviously the most important thing is making sure that children of all colors find you know, safe, stable, and loving homes. And if we focus on the children, that would be our greatest concern. But instead, people wanna talk about um, the importance of preserving culture and community um, and, and, and this, this kind of race matching. And I think that it is it's deeply dangerous. There was a really interesting quote recently, and this is in the context of international adoption, which I don't write about as much, um, but uh, another country which was trying to stop uh, adoption from the US um, referred to its children, its orphans, as a natural resource for that country. And I thought that phrase was so emblematic of an attitude about children that they are just, they are something for adults to use. They are not something that is, you know, worthwhile and, and has human dignity on their own. They are merely part of a race and part of a culture. And you see this also in the context I mentioned before that I'd written a lot about Native Americans. Um, we have a law in the books called the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, which amazingly requires uh, that if, if there is a child who is in need of foster care or adoption on an Indian reservation, um, or a child who even has a tiny bit of quote unquote Indian blood in them, 
that, that, that the tribe of that child actually has a say over where that child goes. And sometimes that tribe can have more of a say than the parent of the child. Um, so again, I think it is a, it's a system that has really become focused on the needs and the sensibilities and the desires of adults, uh, not, not those of children. Earlier in our conversation, Naomi, you mentioned predictive analysis and using maybe artificial intelligence or computer algorithms to identify families particularly at risk. And I think that you've written that that's something that, that programs across the country should be willing to use. Uh, and so I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, but I'd also, I'm, I'm, there's a portion of the book where you discuss boyfriends, non-biological parents, often males, who are in the household of single-parent households with children, and the higher degree of incidence of child and abuse and neglect in, in those circumstances than two-parent married families. Link the two topics together. Is there a way to to put into an algorithm apparently higher risk uh, for some families that comes when you have a non-biological parent in the household? Sure. I, I think that um, there's so many misconceptions about child welfare and child abuse in this country, and it's largely driven by kind of the, the very hot headlines uh, that you see out there. So, you know, a lot of people think, you know, child abuse is something that always happens behind closed doors that we don't know about, that we could never predict. It's people hiding children in their basement and the neighbors say, you know, oh, I never knew. Um, that is not the bulk of child abuse cases in this country or severe child neglect cases. And so what we need to understand is that there are clear risk factors uh, for children. Um, children who are living in a home where they have, uh, say, a mother and a non-relative male are about 11 times as likely to be abused as children living in a two-parent married family. Um, and, and we cannot ignore that. And if you really look at the other headlines, what you'll find is, you know, mothers' boyfriends are responsible for quite an enormous percentage of the, uh, the actual abuse, physical abuse that goes on uh, for children. Um, I would say to think about predictive analytics, I mean, you don't, in a sense, you don't write the, the, that fact into an algorithm. These algorithms are based on cases that we know about. And so that's why algorithms like this can become more exacting over time, which is the more information you feed it, the more clear and detailed uh, it can become. And so um, uh, this, this uh, pilot program was actually launched in Allegheny County, which is the area around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and, and what it does is basically there are well over 100 factors uh, that go into the algorithm. But one would be, for instance, who is in the home? Who is living in the home with this child? These are important pieces of information. But we have a ton of other information about these families. We know, for instance, about the criminal records of people who are living in the home. And, and having a violent felon for the mother's boyfriend is obviously going to be a, a pretty big risk factor when you think about the safety of a child. But there are other things that we have to understand, and there are things that you wouldn't necessarily think of. So, for instance, you know, we have a lot of public programs in this country that allow people to keep on their heat and their electricity. Um, if you have a situation where a family has been reported multiple times for letting their electricity go off, um, for not having heat in their homes, Many people think, oh, that's just a sign of poverty. It's not just a sign of poverty. If you're living in Pittsburgh and in December and you don't have heat in your home, there are programs that can help you. 
if you are too incapacitated to figure out that you need to get heat in your home or your children will freeze to death, that is a separate problem that we need to address. Um, and so all of these factors, like we have school records, we have criminal records, we have public assistance records, as you know, Robert, um, that allow us to understand which children are at most risk. And we're only using these algorithms, by the way, once someone makes a call to a child abuse hotline. We're not just looking at the whole population of Pittsburgh and saying, oh, which kids should we go investigate today? We're saying when a call comes in, how do we determine which kids are this kid was left in the car while their mother went to the dry cleaner for five minutes, and this kid could be in severe, imminent harm very soon. You know, that's a, a really good point you made about the um, the use and availability of other forms of public assistance for low-income families. Uh, it is so, we've done so much to make the availability of heating assistance, the availability of food assistance, the availability of housing assistance available to families um, and not just to, and and made an effort to in outreach efforts that that the 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 evidence that someone is is out of those systems completely is an indication of a real problem because they are very available and highly utilized. I mean, the take up rates for eligible populations for public health insurance for SNAP or food stamp benefits are very high, 80, 90 percent. And I think that's a point that. Most people who don't understand the system wouldn't understand. But if you're not benefiting from those, it may be that, that there's just something, there's something wrong. There's some issue that needs to be addressed. And that's why, uh, you know, you, uh, workers need to make an outreach effort and find out what's going on. Um, now, another thing I want to bring up is sort of your place in the debate. I, I want to compliment you on your, your blurbs. I mean... You've got Senator Mary Landrew, the Democratic, former Democratic senator from Louisiana. You've got, you know, I don't want to hurt your feelings, Naomi, but another one of my favorite uh, women journalists, Caitlin Flanagan. You've got Mary Eberstadt, of course, related to the great Eberstadt family of AEI. Erica Christakis, you know, sort of an infamous figure from Yale and a really great uh, 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 intellectual in her own right, if, 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 we, if you follow her writing. So you, you've got all these great, this great praise, but I know this world to be dominated by uh, people who are not, uh, who wouldn't call themselves as you did, a, a, you know, a true blue conservative. Uh, how, are, how are you doing in the community of child well, welfare experts and advocates? What's it like? So I, I think I would definitely say I've made my share of enemies. <laughs> Um, but I think that I've actually tried to create a community myself, um, and it's a community of people who are, I don't think would really describe themselves as conservative, but I have a working group uh, that I've hosted at AEI now for the last couple of years of about two dozen people who are uh, researchers, former agency heads, former family court judges, nonprofit leaders, who all kind of, I think, occupy a very sensible middle uh, when it comes to child welfare. Um, they are people who are, um, you know, who have devoted their lives to this area in one way or another. Um, and I think they're people who are increasingly worried about where the debate is going. Um, people who probably would have fit in well uh, during the 1990s when those laws were passed, when there felt like there was a consensus about meeting the needs of vulnerable kids in this country, regardless of their skin color. 
Um, and now they feel like they're increasingly being pushed out of the debate, that, um, that this uh, kind of progressive rhetoric on race is taking over, um, the idea of abolishing foster care, you know, something that we actually discussed quite a bit in our working group um, over the last couple of years. And the real question that we had repeatedly was, should we take this idea seriously? Can anyone really think that this is a practical or a good idea? I mean, every country in the world basically has some kind of child protective system. Do we really, do people really think we could just get rid of it, poof, and then these kids would be okay? Um, and most recently, you know, our working group actually put out a paper where we, it was called What Child Protection is For, which sounds very basic, but it's something that, that we increasingly felt the need to say because so many people seem to be kind of losing their minds on this topic. So I guess that's kind of where I like to, I'd like to position myself. Like I come at this from a conservative perspective, but I think that um, this is, this should be a bipartisan issue. Um, and I'm worried that the, the kind of fringes have taken over this subject. I have to say that, that, that community building and that reaching out and that convening uh, role is uh, really terrific uh, because if you do it, if you make an effort at it, actually it does pay dividends down the road in terms of advancing a more sensible public policy. It's also, um, you know, it's not always easy for a scholar or a writer uh, who really wants to sit in their, in their office and just do their work and doesn't really want to interact with other human beings. <laughs> uh, and, and I think it's, a, uh, it's an aspect that other AI scholars have, have done and, and continue to do, and I think you're making an effort to do it because it's hard also because you will – you will engage in conversations and debates and discussions that sometimes will, will, be, will frustrate you, but it's the only real way to, to move things forward. Um, I want to re relate your, the, the, the way in which you talk about this issue in terms of the ebbs and flows of public policy over time to other issues, because it's, it's now all coming together a little bit. So in the late 1990s, we had a consensus of that work was important in public assistance. And so Bill Clinton, the Democratic president, passed welfare reform, and we had a consensus that we had to get people into work and not just give them benefits. And that was actually quite successful. We're not going to get into that here, but it was. Um, we also had a consensus that crime needed to be addressed. And, and we, we put in policies, you know, sometimes we call them broken windows policies that addressed low-level street crime, because low-level street crime can lead to high-level street crime. And then we also had a consensus in your world, where we needed to be uh, more effective and more uh, determined to protect the lives of children who were living in difficult circumstance. And we need to be more open to uh, all kinds of policies that, that may offend traditionally liberal or progressive sensibilities. But those consensus in all of those areas, including in yours, seem to be gone. And, and, you know, there's been a reaction against and a sort of loosening up of the concern about crime and where that's led. The Democrats are, you know, undermining work requirements and public assistance with policies that they're pushing. And you're fighting this odd sort of progressive reaction against uh, efforts to protect vulnerable children uh, in the interests of advancing, you know, progressive obsessions. Uh, am I right? Do you, do you think they're, they, they, they are linked together as, as kind of a retreat for conservative approaches that, that um, we need to uh, uh, work to, to uh, 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 turn the tide on? 
Uh, absolutely. I think they were all related. I mean, one, one sort of area that you see that a little bit in is this, uh, the crack epidemic that I mentioned earlier was kind of a, a very high point for the number of kids in foster care. It was obviously, uh, you know, a, a driver of the crime issue as well. Um, and, and those, like I said, substance abuse is still deeply related to child welfare, and we, we can't disconnect those two things. Um, so, yes, I think that there were a, a whole lot of these issues that I, I, I do think there was this reasonable center, and I, and I am worried that it seems to be spinning out of control. I should say that it's not just the progressives who are kind of on this train. I mean, I do think that there is a kind of more libertarian part of the right um, that has just as in some ways, I think that they're not, um, uh, you know, on the right side of some of the, the criminal justice reform issues. Um, I think they're on the wrong side of some of the child welfare debate right now. Um, they also, I think, have been complicit in assuming that child welfare is driven by these free range parenting cases, or they highlight, you know, some egregious case where you know a caseworker or a family court judge overstepped their bounds and then are willing to write off the entire child welfare system with that. Um, so I, I do worry that it's actually both ends of the spectrum, although definitely driven much more by progressive ideas right now, um, that, that is uh, kind of tearing apart this consensus on, on child welfare. I should also say that like that even in the 90s, although there was this sort of consensus, I also, I don't think that we, we delved into it as deeply as we should as conservatives. I mean, I remember even back in the late 90s, you know, when broken windows was the thing, I remember asking other conservatives I knew about these like high profile child fatalities. And I said, what is the broken windows approach to child welfare? How do we fix those bureaucracies? Like, what is the school choice of child welfare? Um, and I often got a lot of kind of shrugging shoulders. Um, but one answer I typically got was, you know, what do you expect? This is the breakdown of the American family. Um, and I think that it answer is true and yet totally insufficient. Um, I don't think conservatives have delved into this issue enough. I think that they have looked at this issue as something that is unsolvable because it involves family breakdown and it's very hard to turn back the clock. And they would say to you, well, um, you know, uh, the state cannot raise children. Again, something I entirely agree with, but as you know, with my research, a lot of what I've looked at are, you know, civil society solutions and faith-based solutions to the adoption and foster care uh, issues that are facing our country. So I, I think that conservatives had, had the right approach and the right consensus in the 90s, but I think that they should have gone a lot further and delved a lot deeper, and I'm hoping that we can do that now. You know, I, I can't agree with you more on that, that way in which conservatives react on uh, uh, child welfare or abuse and neglect issues and sort of say, well, that's the breakdown of the American family because it's just, just statistically inaccurate. The, there are a lot of families that are raised in with uh, head of households or single parents or single mothers. And there are things we can do and do do to address that circumstance. And for the vast majority of them, their children are not involved in child abuse investigations or abuse and neglect investigations or uh, removal proceedings. This is a small fraction of the families in America that are um, are led by single mothers. It, it, and so that's another aspect of the discussion. You didn't really make that explicit, but it's a there are lots of problems with with raising children alone. I get that, and and many 
mothers are able to do it ex- very extreme, extremely well and children succeed. But statistically, children do better in married two-parent families. But not every single parent family ends up in the child welfare system. That's just preposterous. And Right, that, and it's why I think this problem is so solvable. Exactly. I, mean, I completely know, agree. 440,000 kids in foster care, and they think, oh, my God, you know, this is crazy. But, but actually, you know, when you think about this country, um, you know, how big and how many people are willing to help, um, it, it strikes me as actually a relatively, you know, solvable problem. The, the, there's, a, there's a church movement out there that uh, is called More Than Enough, and they've calculated that if, you know, 10% of churches in this country decided to engage in foster care, um, they would basically be able to provide a good home for all of the children currently in the system. Yeah. Okay, now, I always like to ask our guests, uh, did we, you know, what did we not ask you? What do you want to make sure you say before we say so long? <laughs> so, uh, and, and I want to particularly ask that with you, Naomi, because I, I really don't want to have done anything wrong on this interview with you. So, <laughs> is there something that we Are didn't ask or you want to make sure you say? <laughs> Um, I guess the one thing we didn't, you know, talk about in terms of kind of technically speaking is, you know, I I mentioned at the beginning that these are state-run systems. So the the federal government provides about half the money for the foster care system. And I think the federal government could be using that money in order to sort of get better results for what they want um, and what we all want. Uh, And I, I don't find that there are really any consequences for states that have bad child welfare outcomes. We wag fingers, um, we put in place consent decrees, um, but there's frankly, there are class action lawsuits, but frankly, there's not a lot of progress that's being made here. So I wish the feds would do a little bit more, but I also think that for those people who are interested in kind of reform, this is really a state and county level issue. And I would encourage people to really kind of understand what the policies are that are driving their own state agencies um, and, and start to ask some more questions. Because again, this is a, these, these policies are put in place uh, at a relatively local level and, and we can have influence over them if we want. If we feel that the children in our community are not being protected, um, it's not, you know, some giant $3.5 trillion federal program that's in charge here. It's really the people um, on the state and county level who can fix things. That's a good way to end. It's also true. Uh, thank you, Phoebe. Thank you. Naomi, thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.